I'm in James chapter 1. A uh, few Bible 10 and 11. James comes just after the book of Hebrews, if that helps you find it. Sometimes gets tucked in there. It's hard to dig out. We're going to be reading uh, from James chapter 1. We're going to read 2 through 4 and then pick up in 11, I mean verse 12, and go through verse 18. James chapter 1, 2 through 4, and then verse 12 through 18. Let's uh, stand together for the reading of God's Word. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. You may be seated. We'll take a moment to reflect on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders. And I'm just noticing the insert in your bulletin. It's just a reminder if it's helpful you to take notes or just think about some questions that you want to deal with as you go home or talk with with your family during the week. Uh, Many of you know that just last night, actually this morning, uh, the elders and um, including myself, came back from a conference in Orlando called the Legionnaire Conference, which is hosted by a group called Legionnaire Ministries, which uh, really is circled around a guy named R.C. Sproul. So we got in at 2 o'clock this morning, driving back from uh, Charlotte. And I thought about this. I thought, you know, at this conference, what's so great about these conferences, you see the best speakers. I mean, you just got... I, I thought about this on Friday, we, we just sat and listened to what I thought were like these 747s sitting at the end of the runway, and at 8.30, they just pressed it full throttle. And what, what came screaming down the runway was John Piper at 8.30. And then you had 20 minutes before Al Mohler, the president of, of Southern Seminary, takes off. And then you have a 
a little break for lunch, and then you have John Piper. He comes in and takes off. And then you have Ravi Zacharias at full throttle, which is wonderful unless you have to preach on the following Sunday. And so I have this same feeling of now it's my turn. And I'm like this little guy trying to pull on the propeller to try to get it to go around. And so maybe today it'll just be the little Piper Cub just trying to chug down behind the 747s that have roared off the runway. But thankfully, we're not really just here to hear me. We're, we're here to hear God. And so let's just pray that that happens as we think through this scripture together. Lord, we're. Some of us are really wobbling. Some of us, we can't find a place to land. Every place in our life that we go to, it. It seems satisfying for a moment and then it just evaporates. And we're tired. Some of us need to see the light of the gospel. Some of us need to rethink the word of truth and the, and the crown of life. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make that happen in only the way that you can do through these words, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the book of James today. And when you turn to the book of James, typically what you would think of it is it's sort of like a practical guide to Christian living. It's not necessarily your heavy, heaviest book on theology. It's mostly just the practice of it. Now that you're a Christian, it's written to believers. Here's, how, here's what it would look like just practically as you live your life out. And you just notice in the Opening verse here, verse 2, the very first thing James is telling us is that there are going to be troubles in the life of the believer. Isn't it interesting that in, the, in this sort of practical Christian living guide, of all the things James could sort of launch out on, the first thing he chooses to, to talk about is suffering and evil. Isn't that the most commonly asked question? Why, why am I going through this? What, how do I deal with this difficult situation? James seems to understand that, so that's the first thing he heads off. And notice he's not really talking in these verses as a philosopher. He's, he's not really trying to figure out uh, why evil came about. He's mostly just acknowledging that it exists. It has to be met head on. It has to be handled with care. And so he draws our attention here in these opening verses to two different situations. The first situation in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Is that, is that an easy thing for you to do? You just see that trial coming and you go, what an opportunity for joy. I mean, here it comes. And he's saying something about this trial, these trials of various kinds. It's going gonna, it's gonna to develop something. It's going to produce something. These trials are used to test our faith. And so when you read through the rest of James, you're going to notice this idea of Building your faith or 
your faith preserving or uh, persevering. That's a, a topic as you go through the book. But it's also something very important that Jesus latches on to. You remember back in Mark chapter 4 when we talked about uh, faith. Jesus walks on the water. I mean, I'm sorry. Jesus has asked his disciples to go from Capernaum to the other side of the lake. So they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. They've heeded Jesus' instructions. They get halfway out and this huge storm boils up. And you get the idea that the disciples have done all they can to try to get themselves back or get themselves forward or batten down the hatches. And sort of in this moment of desperation, they come to Jesus and what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. And what do they ask? The same question you and I I would ask. Don't you care about my life? And then Jesus does something very interesting. He gets up. He stills the water. And He doesn't answer their question. He asks them a question. See, He's concerned about something much bigger than just this life. Remember what He asked Him? Where's your faith? What happened to your faith? Because somehow this faith is going to transport us into another life. The life eternal. So Jesus is saying, what about your faith? You're you're so consumed about your life right here. And He's not trying to say it's unimportant. He's just saying, let's look at it in comparison to what's going on. What about your faith? And James is saying, what about your faith? When you see these trials come, you can count it all joy because it's going to build something up in you. It's going to build up your faith. And you're going to be able to persevere. You're going to be able to, to stand. The various trials here, this is producing steadfastness or perseverance, it might say in some of your translations. It's staying power. And notice in verse 4, let this steadfastness have its full effect. Again, your translation might say, let it finish its work. So often what happens to me, and I think it probably happens to you, you get into a trial and you say, well, I must be in the wrong place. I'm in a trial. And so you don't stay in the trial. You immediately back off. You immediately say, well, that's not the right direction. And you don't stay into it. You don't let it accomplish its full effect. And James is saying the Christian life isn't just one success after another. And how often do you hear that on the television these days? If you're not experiencing some success, you must be going in the wrong direction. And the Bible says that's completely opposite thinking. Jesus asked the disciples to go to the other side and the first thing they encounter is a storm that almost cost them their lives. And He's saying, you're right in the right place because I'm not concerned about your best life right now. I'm concerned about your eternal life. And so I'm working on the way to get you there and that's having faith in Christ. Oh, how you're going to get to heaven and look back and say, I'm so thankful for those trials. It developed something in me that has produced a crown of life. The man who remains steadfast, verse 12. This steadfastness has an ultimate goal. Look at this. The man who has stood the test 
he will receive the crown of life. That's the goal. So you have a trial. It's producing something. It's producing perseverance or steadfastness. But it has a goal. You need to know that goal. It's the crown of life. And we have this second situation, verse 13. And then you read this. And it talks now about temptations. Let no one say when he is tempted. Now the word tempted here is the exact same word as trials in verse 2. And so the writer here is trying to differentiate between, he's using the same word, he's just trying to mean it in a different way. So look at here, look here at these verses. Let, um, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for no one can be tempted, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now notice this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed away by his own desire. In your translation, if you're reading from the NIV, it says your own evil desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we have this comparison. You're just putting verse 2, 3, and 4. And again, in verse 12, you're just laying that on top of these verses. And you're going to notice some comparisons. First of all, you're going to notice that temptations have a different origin. What James is talking about here in verse 14 is something that comes from within. So we're looking through the book, the enemy within. It's not, we're not looking at an, an enemy outside. We're looking at some kind of enemy within. And when we come across trials, this enemy within begins to raise its head. And then look at it again. It says people are carried away. They're not carried away by trials. You're you're never carried away by a trial. You're not carried away by God. See, that would be a very easy mistake to make. That's the mistake that, remember, Eve made in the garden. And Adam, they begin to blame other people. And remember Adam? Well, it's the woman's fault. And where did the woman come from? Remember what he said? You gave her to me. You ever said that, husbands? I wouldn't try that one. That doesn't really go very far. But you see how we're, we're quickly and easily want to shift the blame. And as soon as you're willing to shift the blame, every time you're going to be willing to shift it back on God and say it's really His fault. And James is saying, don't make that mistake. James is clear. We can't place the, the blame on the events. We can't place the blame on God's. James is assigning personal responsibility for you, for your actions. It's not I have a disease. It's not I need therapy. It's not I need this four or five letter thing to describe my condition. You're the condition. It's your name. You're the problem. I'm the problem. People are carried away by their own evil desire. And then notice, this evil desire produces something. Just like steadfastness produces something, then this evil desire produces something. Not sin, not steadfastness, but sin. And then sin has a goal, just like this testing has a goal for uh, good purposes. Sin, like steadfastness, has a goal, and it's never life-giving. The goal of sin 
is never life-giving. It's easy to be deceived that when you gossip or you lust or you have greed or jealousy, I know you, you felt this way, for a moment it feels life-giving. That moment you sort of cave into it or you give into it, it feels like you've gotten some energy or power and just quickly it dissipates. Sin, sin never has life as of its goal. Look at it. When it's fully grown, when sin has had its full effect, when you've stayed in the camp of sin, this is the result. It brings forth death. So we have these two things. We have various trials. You are facing them today. And you can respond in one of these two ways. You can either grow in your faith. Remember Paul talks about how you grow in your faith from one degree of glory to another. Or you can grow in another way. You can grow towards death. Setting these two things up. So if you're if you're here today for the first time, you've really sort of stepped into the middle of a series. It's actually a, a difficult series. I found myself wrestling through the issues. And then as I talk to many of you all, just they're hard to think about. It's not particularly pleasant. Let's sort of move on to the love of God. Everybody is okay with that. But it's really helpful for us to see this because we're not going to see the love of God until we really see ourselves well. So during this season of Lent, the 40 days before Easter, we're focusing in on sin, how it works, what it is, how to put it to death. We're taking seriously this verse from Romans 8:13. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So we look at that verse, we're taking that verse seriously. And we're recognizing if we're going to grow as Christians, we need to see how this, this deceit operates. What are, the, what are the tricks of the trade that we can pick up so we can begin to recognize what's happening in our minds and in, our, in our, the members of our bodies? So we're going to really focus here on James 1, 14 and 15. And we're going to try to focus it down into to remembering what the goal of sin is. We need to have that firmly locked down in our mind. And then we're going to look at the process that it goes through. First of all, let's look at the goal. The goal, as we've said, the, it's not life, but it's death. And the reason this is so important to, for us to have firmly placed in our mind is because we're so easy to make peace to, with our evil desires. Most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we're really sort of in sin management. We're just sort of trying to keep it at bay. We're not necessarily trying to kill it. We just don't want it to overcome us. So, so we're sort of in this, it feels like the battle of the bulge. So, you know, it kind of gives here and I give there and then it gives back and I take back. And it, We're just sort of in this sin management game. And it's so easy to think that's fine. Rich uh, Lungard, Chris Lungard, the writer of the book, The Enemy Within, the flesh wants us to believe that the consequences, see if this, this applies to your thinking. The flesh wants us to believe that the consequences for dallying with sin will only be slight. Something like this. Well, I guess I'm not going to get as much a blessing from God. 
or I'm just going to have a cheaper seat in heaven. Does your mind ever work that way? I know this is really rotten, and maybe I'm just going to be short a few treasures in heaven. House is going to be a little bit smaller. Not the street of gold, but the street of silver or copper or something. I'm just not going to quite get the nicest seat. But look, I'm in heaven, so kind of that's all that matters, right? And you just sort of put sin at ease. Like, it's, it's okay. You're not really interested in putting it to death. Every student, probably every student knows this. This famous quote from Neville Chamberlain. Remember this quote? He's the Prime Minister of England when World War II is really beginning to break out. And he goes and he meets with Adolf Hitler. And they have this peace treaty. And that all the people in England were very worried about what was going to happen to their own country. And so they're thinking about, well, what is Neville Chamberlain going to say when he gets off the plane after having come back from the treaty? And this is what he says in 1938, before the slaughter of over six million Jews. I believe it is peace for our time. Peace with honor. You see what was happening? He looked at evil and he just tried to manage it. If it just kind of stays out of this arena, then we'll be okay. And what happened? Well, we know the, the answer to that. John Owen, again, the Puritan writer for Mortification of Sin, he says this, Sin... It's like a grave. It's never satisfied. It is modest, as it were, in its first motions and proposals. But having once got footing in your heart, it constantly makes good on its ground. It's always pressing forward. I was listening to a person, none of you would know them. He doesn't even live in Wilmington. And I was listening to him, to he was recounting tearfully the evil that he had lived through as a young man, a teenager. And this is what he said, and I quote, I always thought it would stop. I always thought it would stop, but it just kept growing. The goal of sin is death. That's what it's after. Think again with me on King David. Imagine if he had just taken a few moments to consider what his sin was going to cause. Here he is. We've, we talked about this last week. He, he's been chosen by God. He defeats Goliath and he rescues the Ark of the Covenant. And he establishes the kingdom over over one unified country after Saul. And he's in Jerusalem. He's fought all kinds of battles. He's got these great warriors that he talks about. These 30 great men. Everything just seems so perfect. And then he finds himself up on this rooftop. And you know the story. This, this one effect. Think about this one effect of adultery. Think about the death that it brought. The first death that it brought was to a marriage. The second death it brought was to Uriah. He, he destroyed the marriage by having an affair with Bathsheba. And then you remember what happened? He invites Uriah back because he knows he's impregnated 
Bathsheba, and he tries to get him drunk to sleep with his wife. So he's hiding the lie, and he's putting a lot of people uh, in the lie. And then when Uriah doesn't do it, he has him killed. Uriah was one of his best friends. And when you read the account of the 30 great men that David calls great, Uriah is the last one that's listed. So he kill, sin kills a marriage. Sin kills a man. What happened to the baby that Bathsheba gave birth to? She died. What did Nathan the prophet say to David because of this sin? What did he promise David would never leave his household? Remember what it was? A sword. And as you read the end of David's life, it's one murder in their family after another. Think, if he could have just stopped for one moment and please put yourself in his shoes. Everything seems to be going along fine. And just for, for whatever reason, you find yourself maybe in the wrong place at the wrong time and you see it out there and it looks like it's going to be so life-giving. If I just get that one thing, oh gosh. <coughs> and he's in a hurry to go get it. And he hurries himself out to get Bathsheba. And the rest of his life, it brings one death after another. One of the ways that you and I can work against this enemy within is to stop for a moment, right at the moment of your sin, and just say, this means to bring me death. Me, relationships, somebody else, a family. The goal of this is to bring me death. If you lie, you begin to put to death trust in a relationship. Every parent knows this. Every child knows this. Your child comes home and tells a lie. You, you catch him in the lie. And what do you say? Even if it's very insignificant. You don't say, well, it's kind of an insignificant lie. We won't jump on the insignificant lies. We'll just jump on the big lies. Why don't you do that? Because the insignificant lies grow to big lies. And as soon as you get real comfortable with the tiny lie, you're going to find yourself getting a little bit more comfortable with the bigger lie. And as a good parent, as soon as you hear the first lie, pow! Whether it's hand against hand or hand against another body part. Because you don't want that to grow. Because it puts to death your relationship with your child. If you lust, it puts to death intimacy. It puts to death purity. When you're lusting, you're taking a sword out and you're putting something or someone else to death. It's no small little internal thing. I sort of just got it in my head. And it doesn't affect anybody else. When you have anger or jealousy, it puts to death a relationship. We see this all the time. So, so when, when you're at your first sign, when you're, when you're beginning to be dragged away, just take a moment and recognize if this sin gets to full bloom, it's going to put you to death. 
That's the goal. We have to have that in our mind. Secondly, let's just look at the process. Look at the starting point for temptation. You're dragged away. What does it say? By your own desire or your own evil desire. It might say your own lusts. And, and probably like me, you hear that. And the first thing you would think is evil desires. Well, uh, you know, I have these desires for bad things. So that's an evil desire. And that would be an evil desire. But that's not what James is talking about here. He, you can't see it right here in the English text, but in the Greek text, he's using a different word that's really difficult to translate. And we've talked about this at least one other time. He's using this word called epithemia. Epithemia. And what that means is an over-desire, not an evil desire. You and I all have natural or normal desires. That's totally normal. And so what James is saying is that something comes in and the natural or normal desire becomes an epi-desire. It becomes the very center of your life. When you're talking about an earthquake and you want to find the epicenter, you want to go back to where it began. It's at the very center of this whole earthquake. And when your life begins to quake, you're going to go back and find out, I have an epi-desire. I've taken something normal and made it much larger than it should be. It's now consumed all my thinking. I order my life around this thing. That was a natural desire, but now it's become an epi-desire. It's become bigger than it should be. So James here is not, he's not talking about sin in this way. He's not talking about wanting bad things. He's talking about wanting things too badly. James, in this passage, is not talking about wanting bad things. Those are sort of the easy things. I don't, not that. It's wanting things, normal, natural things, too badly. Hunger is a normal desire. Eating is a normal response. Gluttony is a sin. The desire for intimacy, that's a normal desire. Sex is a normal or natural function. Adultery is a sin. Fatigue, normal desire. Jesus slept. Resting, sleeping, natural, laziness, that's a sin. You see, that, see how that works? Something very normal and natural. And what that reminds me of is when Paul says, when I want to do good, when I want to do something very normal or natural, what does he say? Evil. It's right there with me. So when you're tired, evil is going to come up and say, be lazy. You deserve it. When you're hungry, oh, you don't know. When, when are you going to get your next meal? Eat some more. You see, it just moves right alongside of all the good things. That's what's so deceptive about it. It takes a normal thing and makes it an epi-desire. And then notice the language that James uses here. It's very powerful. It's this very powerful sexual 
imagery. Notice it. You probably picked it up. There's enticement. And then what's the next sexual word that's used in there? There's conception. And then what's final? Birth. This is what's happening. This is the language that the Bible uses because one of the main relationships in the Bible to describe God's relationship to His people. What's one of the main relationships God uses to describe His relationship to His people? One of them would be a child and a father. But what's another one? A husband and a wife. Jeremiah chapter 3. By the roadside, Jeremiah is talking to the God's people, Israel. By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers. You sat like a nomad in the desert. Have you seen what faithful, faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. When Jesus encounters the Pharisees and He looks at them, do you remember what He refers to them as? A wicked and adulterous generation. And so what happens is you and I take a normal, natural desire. We make it an epi-desire. And God comes down like a passionate husband. He bursts through the door of your life. And He sees you sleeping with somebody else. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are you sleeping with? What normal, natural thing has become a lover? And now it's at the center. And oh, God can be out there and I want Him to work on my behalf for certain, but I want this thing. One of the places you see this with, or I see it, just um, with some sadness, and I want to say it because there's, there would be lots of people who would need to be reminded of this. You have a Christian high school, college age person. They, they're, they're really believers. They love the Lord. Uh, they have all kinds of signs that would... You know, they're believers. They're single. They have natural, normal desires. And so many times, especially in women, those natural, normal desires for intimacy, for relationship, I'm not demeaning them. But they become epi desires. And some non Christian person walks across the screen. And because you're afraid, you bite the hook. 
Now, God can redeem many of those relationships, and I've seen it happen, and praise the Lord for that. But I've seen time and again someone, a Christian, just get ground down to death. A normal, natural desire in a high school boy or a college girl becomes the center. And I don't dislike God, but I like this more. And I've got to have this now. And if I don't have it, I won't have life. And what happens over and over and over again? Death. We have to look at the choices that we make. We have to follow after God's plan and God's Word. And you may be single all of your life. And I'm not saying that wouldn't be disappointing. But in eternity, God's going to more than make it up to you. You don't even think about that. When you have normal desires and they become, they come close to the center, this language that James uses, you get lured or enticed. James was a, probably some kind of fisherman or hunter. Because these terms are hunting and fishing terms. And so you get this great picture. You, you have a normal desire and it's getting close to the center. And your flesh just casts out a little bait. And just drags it across the screen of your mind. And if you don't bite the first time, guess what it does? Cast it out again. And if you don't bite the second time, guess what it does? It casts it out again. Sin never gets tired. And you sit there like a little fish. And I just love watching hunters and fishermen. It's fat. I'm not particularly one or the other, especially if you've been fishing with me. I'm, I'm a fisherman. I'm not a catcher man. I'm great at throwing it out, but nothing ever comes back. But don't you love it when you get with somebody who, who really does that? If you're a hunter or a fisherman, they've got all kinds of camouflage. And if you get out in the flatlands, you got your boat's camouflaged. You can't even get in your boat because you can't see it. You don't know it's the weeds or your boat. And if you luck, luckily get into it, you got all this camo over your boat. You've got total camo. you get all stuff on your head. You get a lure if you're a fisherman. You spray something on the lure so it smells like the thing. I mean, it's all kinds of little tricks. And, and you get with these people, you got to think like a fish. you got to think like a bird. They, they, they know everything about what they're trying to catch. Your flesh knows everything about you. It knows every weakness. And it so easily just casts it out in front of you. And just pulls it along the screen. But you know what's behind every lure, everyone? A hook. And as tasty it is for the one moment, everybody knows when you got it on the hook, what's going to happen. It's going to get in the pan. What's, what's alluring to you? Do you know? See, if you don't know, you're hooked. The beginning of beginning to fight against this is at least understanding, I when that comes across my screen, I find myself wanting to pop out and grab a hold of it. 
even though I know it has a hook in it? What entices you? What, what lures you out? I love this in Proverbs chapter 7. Not, not because it's wonderful, but because it's so true. Listen carefully, especially young men. It's about a young man and a prostitute. Proverbs 7. He was going down the street near her corner. You can see the first mistake. Walking along in the direction of her house at twilight. See, darkness sets in. Trying to hide as the day was fading, as the dark night was setting in. She comes out. Come. Let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. With persuasive words, she she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox to slaughter. Like a deer stepping into a noose. Like a bird darting into cage. Darting into a snare. Little knowing that it was going to cost him what? His life. Sin always has at its goal your death. Many of the victims she has brought down, her slain or a mighty throng, her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. What dominates your thinking? When you lay in bed, it just rolls and rolls around in your mind. Fear? Comfort? Pleasure? Money? People? What's at the epicenter? Do you know what it is? I want to move towards a conclusion and just mention a couple of things because we're going to move forward on this in the next couple of weeks. But it's here in the text as we keep going. You get to the end of the sermon, and what if I said amen? Amen. Give me some help, brother. I mean, this is hard. How can I get out of this? What, what, what opening is there for me to, to begin to move away? I see you're describing me well, but I don't know the path out of this. Let's just look at verse 16 to the following. Don't be deceived. Great encouragement. Don't be deceived, brothers, sisters. Every good gift, every perfect gift, it comes down from above. It's, it's not a lure. It doesn't have a hook on it. It's a perfect gift. It's floating down from above. It's coming down from the Father of light. Not, not, not twilight, but light. And notice this. With whom there is no variation or shadow. Sin is so elusive just when you think you're satisfied and you have enough, it just doesn't satisfy. I've got to have one more now. I need, and, and I need then one more. But look at what James is saying. Somebody's out there, and we know who we're going to get to. Somebody's out there that when you grab hold of Him, He's all that you need. He doesn't ever change. Sin always is shifting. You're on shifting sand, but with on Christ, you're on the solid rock. 
He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 18. Of His own will. This is one of the best verses. This is one of the best phrases in the whole Bible. You are brought into His camp by His own will. That's the greatest news the Gospel can ever proclaim. Because if it's by your will, what's going to happen to your will? I'm going to change my will. I will want to be in the kingdom today, but tomorrow I might not want to be in the kingdom. And He's bringing you in by His own will. Praise the Lord for His mercy. He's acting out of His namesake. I'm so glad He's not acting according to my namesake. And how did He bring you in? He brought us forth. He gave us birth, it says, by the Word of truth. How did you hear about Christ? You heard about Christ by the Word of God. How are you going to open up a door to escape from these temptations? You're going to be filling your mind with the Word of God. Psalm 119. How is it that a young man is going to keep his way pure? How is it, young men? Do you know? When the lure comes across the screen, what is it you're going to use to fight at that very moment? You better have something. And it better not be your own goodwill. Because your own goodwill isn't going to, going to cut it. How is it that a young man keeps his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And look, we're not just talking about a word and truth as some written stuff on a tablet. Are we? We're not just talking about getting your text out and memorizing it, are we? No. Because what does Jesus say about Himself? In the beginning was... What was it? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became... Flesh. You're not just studying black ink on a white piece of paper. You're getting to know the Savior of the world. And when He comes in, He stands up against all deception and He says, I am the truth. The Word and the truth is Jesus Christ. And so hear me, we must be focused on Him. And nothing else. Let's pray together. Lord, there's all ways, opportunity for right now, right in the middle of the preaching of the Gospel, right in the, right in the moment of a, a real moment of clarity about our sin, about our, our situation before a holy God, about how we're being deceived, right when you, you and I think, yes, I'm getting it, at that moment, evil 
is right there with me. And so I'm just praying for a a divine moment of clarity. A space, no evil. Just light. It, it, It just can't be done by my exhortation. It must be done by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's what I pray for. Lord, we take the offering. I just never want anybody to be confused by the gift that they give. That that somehow earns them points with you. We are in the kingdom because he chose us. So what we give back is out of the celebration of what you've done. Help us. Come, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.